0: Talking Books on New South 106 to 108
1: He was always seeking the truth. It was actually his mission for writing. He talks about this as a matter of fact in his 1932 book Death in the Afternoon. And he says, talking about himself as a writer, that what he was after was the real thing, and he capitalizes real thing, and he said what he's trying to do is to tell something in a way that will make it last, that will make it just as true in one year or five years or ten years, and if a writer has luck and states it purely enough, always. So this is sort of a, almost a, a missionary zeal he has to tell the truth, and he talks a lot about wanting to get in touch with what he really felt about something rather than what he thought he was supposed to feel about it or had been taught to feel about it. And it was really to drill down and to try to capture the authenticity of experience that was always a goal of his. He could be flippant, he could be sarcastic, he could be cynical about just about everything except writing was a sacred subject to him. He really was truly devoted to trying to, to always push himself one step farther. Ezra Pound told the, the young moderns to make it new, and make it new was sort of the rallying cry of uh, modernism. And Hemingway took that lesson to heart and was trying to make it new in everything he wrote throughout his life.
0: For a true writer, each book should be a new beginning, where he tries again for something that is beyond attainment. He should always try for something that has never been done or that others have tried and failed. Then sometimes, with great luck, he will succeed. The helpful and pragmatic words of American novelist, short story writer and journalist, Ernest Hemingway. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Were there one or possibly ten Ernest Hemingways? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack that question using the direct, uncompromising and wonderfully expressive letters of Ernest Hemingway, 1926 to 1929, with Sandra Spanier, the general editor of the Hemingway Letters Project, and ask who and what was Ernest Hemingway and why does he produce such strong reactions?
1: Hello, I'm Sandra Spanier, I'm the Liberal Arts Research Professor of English at Pennsylvania State University and the General Editor of the Hemingway Letters Project. We are producing, uh, in a projected 17 volumes, the complete scholarly edition of The Letters of Ernest Hemingway by Cambridge University Press. This is a complete collection of the authors' some 6,000 located surviving letters. It is authorized by the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and by the Hemingway family. We're fortunate to have the special interest of Hemingway's sole surviving son, Patrick Hemingway, who was the one who wanted a complete scholarly edition of his father's letters, which puts him in the same class as D.H. Lawrence, Charles Darwin, Mark Twain, uh, other major figures who merit having all of their correspondence collected Patrick's feeling is that it should be all or nothing. He didn't want any picking or choosing, which is why we are publishing everything we can find. Uh, this ranges from telegrams, telegram cables to 14-page, single-space typewritten letters. So it's really a massive project.
0: Sandra, really well done on the collection of letters. I have to say you've really nailed it there when you say all or nothing because while all the letters to me were so interesting, there's some very pedestrian stuff, there's some deeply heartfelt stuff, very intimate stuff, very uncomfortable stuff and then others that are just kind of quite whimsical and everyday so you really get an all or nothing side uh, to Ernest Hemingway. I'm just wondering as I was progressing through the series of letters I, I, I began to think, does anyone really know Ernest Hemingway? because he was such a joint of a man, this great symbol of masculinity and you know, tough and straight talking. Yet when we read through a whole variety of different letters, we get so many different aspects to his personality. He's so complex.
1: That's right. And his first wife, Hadley, said exactly that. Uh, she said that he was had so many sides to him. he was so complicated that you could hardly make a sketch of him in a geometry book. And the value of the letters and the interest of the letters is exactly that, that we see all of those different sides to Hemingway, the tender side, the vulnerable side. He could be a very macho, to be sure, but there's so much more to him that gets lost with the public persona.
0: Yeah, four wives, seven novels, and I think six short story collections. In some ways, it's quite easy for this his big personality or his enormous public persona to get in the way of the fiction, isn't it? Because there's so he blasts out masculinity, and in some ways, that humanity around it.
1: That's right, and and even as early as the the nineteen twenties, when he was a young upstart writer on the left bank of Paris, he was still a large figure. Even in 1926, when he came back from a ski vacation in Schrundz, Austria, where he was working on a a book that then we uh, came to know as The Sun Also Rises, the Paris Tribune actually, in its gossip column, noted that he was back in town and it looked as though he'd put on a few pounds. So even in 1926, he's he's quite a, a notable figure
0: he spoke spanish italian french and obviously english which is a, he, he just shows you what a capacity he had um in so many different ways how do you think it affected his writing style his ability to understand languages because clearly in the letters he flips between a lot of different styles and words and even down to the grammar it's between different uh, languages so i'm just wondering do you think that had an impact on his overall writing i think So,
1: but I think it also just is evidence of his love of language. Uh, He had a very keen ear and he loved wordplay. He loved puns. He will, in his letters, for example, he'll say Christ knows, but he spells it C-H-R-I-S-T-N-O-S-E as though it's a single word. Or he's in Arkansas, for example, um, staying with the the family of his second wife, Pauline Pfeiffer, and he said this is a Christ-awful place. And it's Christ, and then O-F-F-A-L, Christ awful. So he loves that kind of wordplay. But yes, he did uh, pick up on languages very quickly. In the first volume of letters, uh, which spans 1907 to 1922, we see him in Italy during World War I as an 18-year-old volunteer ambulance driver. And he is trying to impress his sister with his Italian. And so he goes off onto these Italian uh, phrases. I passed these by a professor of Italian uh, here at Pennsylvania State University, and she just laughed because she said that a native Italian speaker might have no idea what he was trying to say, but because she teaches young people, Italian, young native English speakers, she knows exactly what grammatical mistakes he's making. So the use of other languages was not necessarily perfect, but he was quite fluent. And apparently he, he learned to swear very fluently and idiomatically in Italian very, very quickly.
0: It's in contrast, though, to his writing style, which was quite sparse and deceptively simple in parts, isn't it?
1: Very much so. Um, He was the master craftsman and extremely disciplined in his writing. It's amazing to see the labor that, that went into things that look so simple. There are manuscripts among his papers at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston, and you can go look and see how he would, in some ways, overwrite a scene or a description and then start stripping away the adjectives until he got down to the bare bones of a sentence he rewrote the ending of A Farewell to Arms 47 times, and all of those 47 drafts are preserved at the Kennedy Library. Um, Fortunately, Hemingway was a pack rat and kept absolutely everything. So it's wonderful to be able to look at his thought process and how he made decisions to get just the right word for his published work. But on the other hand, his letters are just sprawling and He will even make comments along the way. He'll write something, and then in parentheses he'll say, probably misspelled, or go look it up if you want to know the spelling, something like that. So there's this ongoing sort of meta-commentary on his own spelling and grammatical imperfections, but he did not consider letter writing to be something he wanted to invest a great deal of, of his intellectual energy, and he just dashed these things off. And they capture his mood of the moment, uh, the events of the day. So there's a great sense of immediacy in the letters. He'll talk about his malfunctioning typewriter and curse at his typewriter while he's he's writing a letter, for example. Or he'll talk about how the kids are crying in the other room. Gives a much more human, down-to-earth picture of him.
0: Just coming back to those 47 drafts, is that absolute artistry or is that psychotic perfectionism? Because you could look at that so differently, couldn't you?
1: Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think at this stage of his life, it's perfectionism. Absolutely. He, he he believed very deeply in art, in writing. If If he had a religion, that was it. And he was a very zealous apprentice in his early days in Paris in the 20s and he listened to advice of writers like Ezra Pound and Gertrude Stein and F. Scott Fitzgerald, and then he found his own voice and really took off with that. But he, he would definitely labour over his published work but I think it gave him great satisfaction. He he said he was never happier than when he was living in that country making those scenes. Uh, He talked about that in relation to the composition of A Farewell to Arms, for example, years later.
0: In your introductions you write that the letters are unpolished, unselfconscious, candid and casual. It got me thinking, isn't that what we want from a communication really? Because you want that burst of freedom and honesty. And that immediacy, don't you
1: I think we do that's again it's it's refreshing, and it gives us insight into him as a person. His son, Patrick, who's again been just wonderful about answering questions and giving insights into his father's work, had compared his he compares a writer to a pope, and he says a pope does a lot of talking, but when he speaks ex cathedra, from the chair. That's very different. That's the official word. And Patrick was sort of comparing Hemingway's work for publication as the the pronouncements of a pope, whereas just his daily conversation was was much different in tone and, and substance.
0: Sandra, there's a lovely letter to um, an American painter and writer, a friend of Hemingway. I think it's dated the first of October, 1928, and it's unbelievably encouraging and uh, supportive and really straight up. And it's completely different to the hard drinking, big game shooting, super macho Hemingway that we side that we see. It's part of that kind of Hemingway myth. He's very supportive and and uh, very emotional, and and we see this superb friend. He, he he's trying to encourage Waldo to write. I think he's got writer's block or something and he writes something on the lines of my god it's hard for anybody to write i never start a damn thing without knowing 200 times i can't write never will be able to write a line can't go on and then it goes on to say you know that you have to um, just knuckle down and and not stop it's a beautiful letter isn't it
1: yes absolutely he's very encouraging of other writers and really gives them pep talks almost In this letter to Waldo Pierce uh, around October 1st, 1928, uh, he says, Why the hell don't you write some pieces? Don't start as a novel if that is too bloody long and keeps your nose on the grindstone too long, but start as anything, a story or any damn thing, but then finish it. That's in capital letters, but then finish it. Uh, He goes on to say, The only thing to do is to write it. I never think about anything else. Why the hell should you write it? If you want to write about anything, mother, father, brother, wife, bootlegger, bastard son, or anything else, for God's sake, put it in. There are no punches pulled in literature. If you pull them, they walk out on you. And then he goes on to say, my God, it is hard for anybody to write. I never start a damn thing without knowing 200 times I can't write never will be able to write a line, can't go on, can't get started, stuff is rotten, can't say what I mean. No, there is a whole fine, complete thing, and all I get of it is the bacon rinds. You would write better than anybody, but the minute it becomes impossible, you stop. That is the time you have to go on through, and then it gets easier. It always gets utterly and completely impossible. Thank God it does. Otherwise, everybody would write and I would starve to death.
0: It's it's so refreshingly honest, you know, when you have these writers up in ivory towers or so you think they are. But he goes on somewhere to say, look, write 500 words a day. And it got me thinking, God, if you apply yourself in that, we use that as a kind of a frame on anything, whether it's gardening, whether it's cooking, whatever it is that's floating your boat. If you just apply yourself and use the kind of the 500 words a day, you become a master eventually, don't you? That's
1: absolutely right, and that is reflective of his own writing practices, too. He would get up, and even before breakfast, first thing in the morning, while everything was fresh in his mind, he would write. And 500 words was a good day for him. So he's not going on, usually not going on these sort of long binges of writing, but instead, he did do that sometimes. But generally, very, very disciplined, very methodical, and you can trace the progress of various works through the letters because he's giving page counts in letters to his friends so that when he's writing a farewell to arms, for example, we can track the progress. I'm on page 166 or I'm on page 361. Also, sometimes when he doesn't put a date on a letter, we have to use clues like that, like the word count of a novel or the number of miles on his car's odometer if he's going on a trip and try to put these letters in the proper sequence. But yes, he was very quantitative that way with himself too. He would write down word counts of what he'd accomplished each day.
0: One of the things I was very curious to read about, and you, you highlighted it also in your introductions, is that Hemingway wrote letters in clusters. And you say somewhere that, you know, he was very aware of his audience and he he kind of tailored her letter to who and what, who, whoever he was sending it to. But within that, one of the odd things was that he used to um, write a letter to his mum and dad, on, let's say on the same day, and he'd mail them in separate envelopes it's almost like he compartmentalised his relationship with his mother and his father while they were living in the same house and how he communicated to each of them independently. Is that a bit strange?
1: Well, I think it's actually admirable um, because he's not just writing a generic dear folks or dear family letter as an obligation. He did do that occasionally, but... In this volume, we do have two letters written on the same day to each of his parents, and each one is very much a conversation with that parent as an individual, so that with his father, who was a a physician and a an outdoor enthusiast and a wonderful shot, uh, he had apparently amazing eyesight and taught Hemingway how to hunt and fish, which remains lifelong passions of hemingway 's. To his father, he he will talk about the species of animals he's seen or the, the number of fish he's caught, uh, plants he's seen. And yet to his mother, who was a master musician and then took up painting, he talks about art, he talks about opera, talks about music. So I actually think it's indicative of the fact that he was having very tailored individual conversations with people he was writing to. And I see that as a mark of of sincerity and really wanting to connect
0: there is what can only be described as a stunningly heartfelt letter he sent to his father. Um, I think it was in September 1927. It was on the breakup of his second marriage to Hadley and um, it is an, it's over three pages and it's unbelievable. He wrote it between the 9th and 14th of September so he wrote it over five days which is interesting because you know we live in with technology now and computers and how you can draft and it's interesting to see how he actually did it logistically uh, uh, and all the rest and he was describing the breakup in the marriage and what it meant to him and how personally he took it and also why he chose not to tell his parents when it actually happened. And I think the media call up with him and his parents found out. And it is a stunning, as I said, a stunning letter. I might get you to read from a bit of it because it is such an open communication. It, it, it makes it such a wonderful reading.
1: This is a v- very interesting letter because He broke up with his first wife, Hadley, and uh, was having an affair with their mutual friend, Pauline Pfeiffer. And he and Pauline had been married then in Paris in May of 1927. And apparently he uh, neglected to tell his parents, who were very upright citizens of Oak Park, Illinois, a very straight-laced, upper-middle-class community uh, west of Chicago, And his parents actually read about his divorce in the newspaper and were were quite hurt. So one of the things we also have in in the course of researching the letters is because he was such a, a pack rat, we have thousands of letters that he received. And so it's possible to oftentimes put together the letters he wrote and see what he was responding to. So in this case, his father had written to him on August 8th, Oh, Ernest, how could you leave Hadley and Bumby? That's their son, John. Your dear mother and I have been heartbroken over your conduct. He complained that, that he and, and the family heard of uh, Ernest and Hadley's divorce through public announcements in newspapers and uh, Hemingway writes somewhat uh, in the voice of a a wayward son. It's a little bit defensive, but he's trying to make his his parents understand. He he, he makes some excuses, too. He's writing um, and says, You cannot know how badly I feel about having caused you and mother so much shame and suffering, but I could not write you about all of my and Hadley's troubles, even if it were the thing to do. It takes two weeks for a letter to cross the Atlantic, and I have tried not to transfer all the hell I have been through to anyone by letter. I love Hadley, and I love Bumby. Hadley and I split up. I did not desert her, nor was I committing adultery with anyone. That's not exactly true. I was living in the apartment with Bumby, looking after him while Hadley was away on a trip, and it was when she came back from this trip that she decided she wanted the definite divorce we arranged everything and there was no scandal and no disgrace. Our trouble had been going on for a long time. It was entirely my fault and it is no one's business. I have nothing but love, admiration, and respect for Hadley. And while we are busted up, I have not in any way lost Bumby. This is not an entirely uh, honest (laughs) and complete confession to his father, but he's, he's trying to make his father understand. He goes on to say, you are fortunate enough to have only been in love with one woman in your life. For over a year, I had been in love with two people and had been absolutely faithful to Hadley. When Hadley decided that we had better get a divorce, the girl with whom I was in love was in America. I had not heard from her for almost two months. In her last letter, she had said that we must not think of each other but of Hadley. What in fact happened was that when Hadley found out that Ernest was having an affair with their friend Pauline, She was, of course, terribly hurt, but asked that the two of them remain apart for three months. And if at the end of three months of no communication, they still wanted to get married, then she would would let him go, would give him a divorce. So that's why Pauline was in America, uh, not because she happened to be, but because she went there to make their separation less difficult. So he's presenting the facts in a way that he thinks might be the least hurtful to his father and also that make him look a little bit better.
0: Yeah, it's quite the spin. I I read the letter and I said it goes on for nearly three pages yes. um, at least four or five times because I found it such a monumental moral cop-out in the most exquisite style. I said exactly. Gee-